Jaja Pinks. You are listening to Behind the Lens. And yes, you are listening to Behind the Lens. Thank you for that, Jar Jar. And, you know, before we go any further in today's show, there, there was a big Star Wars announcement this morning uh, from Walt Disney Company. We now have the new name of Star Wars 8. It is Star Wars The Last Jedi. So, with that in mind, I know that fingers are flying around the globe, opining and uh, philosophizing as to what that could mean. So, we will wait and find out as I'm sure more tidbits uh, tumble out. But we have the name. And on that happy note, after a weekend that for many was not happy, for others it was happy, um, welcome to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lice, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Uh, you can read my interviews and movie reviews around the globe, uh, in print and online, every 24-7 somewhere. But every Monday, you can find me right here on Adrenaline Radio uh, at, at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time with Behind the Lens. Uh, a, some terrific guests again today. Uh, we've got writer-director Evan Oppenheimer uh, at the at the quarter hour mark talking about his new film, Lost in Florence. And for all you Castle fans out there, uh, this is one of the first post-Castle appearances and performances that you will see from Stanikadic. So uh, we'll ask Evan about that. At the half-hour mark, a director whose work I am, I'm crazy about, Christopher Smith. I fell in love with Christopher Smith years ago when he did a film called Severance. It's been about 10, 11 years, all about a, an employee group that went on a mountain retreat, and one by one, they all get killed, and it's got twists and turns, and it, he is so creative and so inventive as a writer and a director. So watching his new film, Detour, with Ty Sheridan, Emery Cohen, and Belle Powley was just a real treat. And I am thrilled that we're going to have Chris calling in at the half-hour mark. Can't wait for that. But before that, we've got, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of you know, film stuff happening here this week. Tomorrow morning, it, are the Oscar nominations are announced. Breaking from tradition, the Academy this year, the press don't get to go and line up for food like, you know, pigs to a trough. Um, it is now, the Academy is now streaming the announcements itself. Uh, you will be able, I will ha- be carrying that stream on moviesharkdeblore.com. So feel free to log in, 5.10 a.m. Pacific time, the feed will go live. Uh, for the first batch, and then I understand, I think at 5.38, a second batch uh, of nominees will be announced. So this is going to be really interesting to see how this plays out uh, around the globe with a live feed and nobody uh, in person uh, at the Academy. And what else do we have going on? Brian, what else do we have going on? Well, we're closing in on the end of January, going into February. That's going on. But, you know, in terms of... You know, how much closer are we to Star Wars The Last Jedi? Oh, we're, now it finally has a title. I, I still have it as Episode 8, but Star Wars The Last Jedi will be in the theater near you in 325 days, 12 hours, and 55 minutes to go from this moment. December 15th. December of, uh, yeah, the 15th, yeah, that's right. Mark your calendars. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the new title. I'm excited. It opens up all kinds of po- immediate possibilities as to what it could mean. And I'm not sure if you, if you, as the audience and you yourself, Debbie, have seen the poster for it, but it, do, it does away with the traditional yellow. Yes, I have seen it. I've already have it out on on Facebook uh, for behind the lens, my Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Yeah, yeah. It, it does away with the yellow iconic Star Wars logo, and it's in a deep bright red, mm. almost as in uh, lightsaber yielded by. Uh, by Darth Vader or Kylo Ren. So, see, see, he's already opining as to what as to what this is going to mean. Just with that poster alone, there's so much happening. Oh my! We do not have the time here. Uh, well, something important that I want to point out to all of our listeners: I, a lot of classic film fans out there. Um, there is a new, a new classic film series that is launching this Friday on KCET in Los Angeles. Um, 
and other public broadcasting outlets around around the country as well as uh, online. I think it's KCET.org and KCET, KCET Link. It is called Cohen Film Classics. Now, many cinephiles out there may recognize the name of Cohen. Cohen as in Cohen Media Group and Charles S. Cohen. Cohen Media Group, um, Charles Cohen is one of the greatest advocates of the arts and of film uh, anywhere in the world today. Uh, he and the Cohen Media Group have a vault of over 700 films, art house films, silent films, classic films, uh, foreign films, all have been restored, uh, 4K restorations. Uh, he also produces films like The Liberator, uh, The Salesman, which is opening this Friday, as a matter of fact, The Lady, um, you know, the last year, one of the hits of last year, foreign film Rams, Mustang, The People versus Fritz Bauer, a powerful story about post-Nazi Germany. Uh, Standing Tall, May in the Summer, and one of my favorites over the past decade or so, Blanca Nieves, uh, black and white telling, very unique telling of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Charles is just, as long as there's a Charles Cohen in the world, great cinema will have a life. And part of what he is now doing, he's teamed up with KCT to bring Cohen Film Classics. It's a ten right now it's it's for ten weeks through February and March. It's a ten week series that is personally curated by Charles. And uh, as I told him during an interview the other day, that he essentially is becoming a a new Robert Osborne for classic film fans by way of the Cohen film classics. Um, kicking it off kicking off um, this Friday at ten PM is going to be What is Cinema? It is an incredible documentary done by Chuck Workman. Uh, Anybody that knows anything about editing, or even, I mentioned TCM a couple years ago, some of the great, you know, TCM tags and teasers have been done by Chuck Workman. Um, It's a wonderful film, uh, documentary, and it's a great way to kick off a series about film classics. Uh, And Charles doesn't, much as TCM does, um, Charles does an intro, an explanation for the film, and then does an outro and a recap of the film and sets it up. Uh, everything he's picked so far for the month, for starting Friday and then going through February, starting with what is cinema, and then after that follows up with films like Sudden Fear, Hangman Also Die, The Lady, and Fire Over England. A, a wonderful, wonderful uh, crop of films. Uh, that explore noir, that have some wonderful cinematography. Hangman also died, Fire Over England. One of the preeminent cinematographers in film history, James Wong Howe, uh, was the cinematographer on both of those. Two totally different films, totally different looks, both excellent. Hangman also died, directed by Fritz Lang. And, of course, Fire Over England introduces, directed by William K. Howard, but introduces us to Sir Lawrence Olivier and Vivian Lee. So I can't encourage you enough to take, check out the Cohen Film Classics on KCET and online. And if you miss the airing, it will also be broadcast. It will be streaming for seven days after the first broadcast. So I can't encourage you enough uh, to check this out for all you classic film fans and people that just want to learn a little bit more about cinema. Uh, and my full interview with Charles is actually going to be up this week uh, before we get to the launch of Cohen Film Classics on Friday. So I'm very, very excited about this, especially since I do know Charles and have known him for a number of years. And anybody that supports film uh, the way he does deserves a place of reverence uh, with, all, with all of us. But right now i got to turn to a, a new film that came out this weekend. Triple X, Return of Xander Cage. It is action-packed, to die for. Vin Diesel is stars as Xander Cage. Donnie Yen is in the film. Nina Dobroff. Um, Tony Ja, Chris Wu. Um, just an amazing, amazing cast. But it's all about the action. This one is directed by DJ Caruso. DJ Caruso 
he and I go back to 2002 with Assault on Sea, uh, which starred Val Kilmer. Uh, over the years, he's done Eagle Eye, Disturbia. His last big film was I Am Number Four. But now he tackles something that with so much action, so many stunts, this is more than anything he has ever done. And this film is all about the action and all about the stunts. Second unit is headed up by none other than Dan Bradley. Dan Bradley is a a second unit director who holds the title as being number four in position for the highest grossing films uh, in, in film. Uh, as a second unit director, and that's pretty impressive. Um, what what has happened here with Triple X is, if any of you saw Point Break last year with Extreme Sports, and this is extreme as well, but even more extreme with stunts and calling on stunt coordinator Scott Rogers, Troy Robinson, Patrick Mark. And supervising coordinator Bob Brown, who is absolutely amazing, and he'd worked with DJ on I Am Number Four. Troy Robinson, typically Vin Diesel's body stunt double, but in this film he is not. He is one of the supervising, you know, stunt guys. So you know, it's really interesting how it it played out, and and the problems is then created uh, for many of the stunts that Vin had to do where a stunt double was needed because. They couldn't call on Troy this time. Um, the fight court fights in this film are exemplary. You got Jeremy Marinas, Jason Gosby, Daniel Hernandez, Chris O'Hare, and Tim Connolly as your fight coordinators, along with Donnie Yen coordinating a lot of the martial arts stuff. So I had a chance to sit down with DJ and talk to him about the stunt-heavy nature of Triple X. Take a listen to what he had to say. What thrills me is you bring in Scotty Rogers, Troy Robinson, you know, Patrick and Bob Brown as your primary stunt coordinators on this. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got your fight choreographers. You know, I'm surprised Todd, Troy didn't double for Vin this time, did he? He didn't really have time. I mean, he didn't have time because of the way that we had to split up. And like what happened was like when you look at it, like the skiing unit had to be sort of taken over by the only guys that can actually ski in the jungle and do right. that. So then you have Troy saying, Troy, go watch this because you have to... He's also a representative of Vin. Right. In a way, because he's been with Vin forever to make yeah. sure that these guys are looking right and doing it right. So then they would come back with videotapes. And then, um, you know, each, each... The thing about this film was like, Bobby Brown, I was like, Bob, I really, really need your help with the zero G I'm going to put you in charge of the zero G fight. So it was really like I had this sort of great sort of tool to move all these guys around to, to really take a sequence and take the ownership in it so that we can be, I can be presented with it. Cause you know, well now that you know production, think about this. I mean, we made this movie for 85 million. They wouldn't give me a penny more cause they weren't sure. Is there life in the franchise? Is there not life in the franchise? You know what I mean? So so we were really efficient and really efficient. So each person, each stunt person. Well, you're always efficient when you shoot. I try, I try. Yeah. You know, I mean, you had Banky with you on Salt on Sea. Yeah, my man was Banky. So, you know, and he's tight with the penny. He's tight with the penny, but I love that man to death. Love that man to death. You know, but assembling this stunt team because this film it's it's about the stunts we've got the heart and the humor in there right that's inherent with Vin coming in and right. Sam right which that was hilarious <laughs> hilarious oh yeah we got Nick Fury rising again oh yeah yeah this is so funny yeah, it's you know funny, and yeah. then he's got the you know the one lens you know like Nick Fury's eye patch exactly and I'm just sitting see we're having fun right um, I mean here's what I knew when it was working like with the editor and I were around and, and, and you know how Neymar has that card in the beginning when he sits with Sam uh-huh. and we put thought he was being recruited for the Avengers right <laughs> <laughs> and when we played that for the studio the studio laughed I was like okay they're going to get this movie they're going to get the tone of the movie. oh yeah immediately yeah, yeah, and then yeah. you've got the graphics popping up in between yeah. introducing each character right, right so it was so much fun yeah. but you know I'm watching all of these disciplines that you have put together and I'm glad you brought up the zero G because mm-hmm. we're seeing more and more of that in film mm-hmm. I just saw it exceedingly well done by uh, Peter Chesum in The Space Between Us. Right, 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 right. You know, how challenging is that, was that for you in this one? Because he just had people floating in zero-G. You've got people fighting. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was really interesting. But the good news was because we had it juxtaposed with the girls 
and Michael Bisbig and Tony Jaa in the you know fighting in the in the in the shootout, we actually were able to chunk it out and break it into sections. But I got to tell you, not tang- not having cables tangle, who's going to be on a pan, who's on this kind of cable, how do we lower this person at the right time, and that's where we did a lot of work. And Bobby Brown was incredibly helpful and all that. But it was really um, making sure we weren't. It wasn't just two people. It was Donnie verse four. It was Vin verse five, and Vin was in a, a data center. Were the were the, the you know we're in more of the confines and so it took a lot of effort uh, to get those things. Right. How many cameras were you shooting with this one? In the zero G or just in general? In general. In general, you know, believe it or not, in general we always had two or three, um, and then basically in some of the bigger action days we got up to five, six, seven cameras and planning little action cameras, little black magic here and a little thing here, and just sort of like grabbing some of the stuff. Uh. And. That was DJ Caruso. You're going to hear more from DJ Caruso in a little bit, talking about editing all of the stunt work, which is a challenge in an, in and of itself. But right now, we have, I am thrilled to welcome Evan Oppenheimer. Hello, Evan. Hello. This is, what a beautiful film, Lost in Florence. Thank you. You're very kind. It's uh I, I, it's a it's a nerve wracking time now. You know the movie is is coming out on Friday and kind of waiting for the for the world to see it. So thank you for saying that. Well, I can say that as I was watching it, number one, the fact that you shot in Florence, Italy, and you kept this very intimately lensed, so that you really get a very homey, very personal feel. I you know I finished watching the film and I, I want to go fly to Florence. <laughs> Well, it's um, th- there's one funny element about that, which is that uh, a lot of the scenes, if you know Florence at all, a lot of the scenes take place at these iconic locations, at the, the Ponte Vecchio and the, mm-hmm. the main piazza, the Piazza della Signoria, and these two characters are are walking around talking, you know, almost like a, you know, almost like a, a Richard Linklater film. <laughs> um, they're walking around having these solitary discussions in these places that are generally just teeming with tourists mm-hmm. and in our scenes there's nobody there there's literally nobody else there which is going to mislead some people i'm afraid because the reason there's nobody there is we shot those scenes at about three in the morning <laughs> oh so <laughs> somebody people may show up and wonder why they don't have the ponte vecchio all to themselves <laughs> uh, no I, I, I feel a little bad about that it's it's not that we cleared out the tourists they just happened not to be there when we were there they just happened to be sleeping getting ready for the next day <laughs> but it is, I mean, it is a stunning film. But, you know, let's, for all the listeners and the viewers, um, you know, talk, t- explain, where did this story come from? Because you wrote and directed this. And by the way, a great film of yours that I, I have to recommend to people is Alchemy with Tom Cavanaugh. Oh, uh, thank you. That was, that was my, um, I guess that was my third film. So I've yeah. written and directed six features now. And they're all, strangely enough, they all seem to be different genres. Alchemy, the one you're referring to, is um, is a romantic comedy yeah. uh, shot here in New York. And that was very fun to do with a really, really great and funny cast. And I followed that one up with a science fiction film. And then the one that I did prior to this was my first family film. And now I've done this, this movie that uh, I guess it's a romantic adventure I, I think it's, to, yeah, I think it's a romantic adventure. I mean, that's one thing I love about your work, Evan, is you're, you know, you can work in any genre. You have not pigeonholed yourself. And well, that's the benefit. Yeah, that's the benefit to not being, not, not being a part of the system in a way. Um, my brother is a, is a writer out in Hollywood and he gets to write for the studios and writes on these big projects. He was one of the writers of Dr. Strange. Uh, but then the problem is, on that sort of project, there's lots of people involved, and you don't you you own it very briefly, but then you have to turn it over to somebody else, and it's not really it's no it, it's no one's passion project in a way. Mm-hmm. It's, it's no one's personal vision. It's a lot of visions that get combined, hopefully, into one fantastic whole. So it's a, it's just a different sort of scenario. So for him, he doesn't even know if he's going to get credited in the movie when he writes it. For right. instance, Doctor Strange, he ended up not getting a credit on. He was. He was crestfallen because he felt like he deserved a credit, he and, and his writing partner, but that's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's a little different. So I make independent films, and then when I got into this business, I decided that I wanted to tell my own stories. 
and I was prepared to make the compromises that that entailed, which means you're you're not going to have the audiences are going to be much smaller. Um, the budgets that you're working with are going to be much smaller. You have to constantly be thinking like a like a business person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to. You, there's not somebody else who's going to be um, taking care of that aspect of the business. So the trade-off is I get to make the movies I want to make. Uh, and so it's kind of a natural thing if you have that freedom to, to jump from one thing to its, its polar opposite in a way because you, you're kind of, you, you spend so long making a movie, it's at least two years, two, three years right. at a minimum, I would say. And so once you're finished with that, you, you might say, well, this movie was very serious. Excuse me, very serious. Now I want to do something that's light and fun. And then after a couple of years of that, you might say, "Well, now I want to do something that's, you know, that's heavier." Um, so that is, I, I am lucky that I've had that that flexibility, that freedom. So where does Lost in Florence come from? What inspired this, especially because you go deep into, you know, the Italian history, and you bring in, you know, the 16th century sport of Calcio Storico. Yes, very well said, by the way. <laughs> That's a phrase many people get tripped up over. My, my, my Latin teacher from high school, Verna Muller, would be very happy to hear that. <laughs> well, for me, this story, as I guess they often are when you're a writer-director, is, is a personal one. Uh, I lived in Florence a long time ago. It was before I went to graduate school. I, was a, I finished college. I'd worked a little bit in film, and then I was a book editor for three years at a, a literary uh, hardcover publishing house. And I was in a, a, a relationship with a woman that was kind of, it was unclear what was going to happen. Uh, we loved each other, but there were, there were issues that needed to be resolved. And so before going to film school, I went to live in, in Florence for the summer, thinking that some distance from this relationship might help elucidated. Um, and while I was there, I happened upon Calcio Storico, which I hadn't heard about. No one I knew had heard of it. And it was this stunning, unique sport that was quite violent, but also quite athletic. And uh, as soon as I saw it, I was, I, was, I was riveted and didn't really think much of it until uh, after I finished film school. And I was thinking, well, what, what could I make a, my first feature about? And Calcio Storico came to mind. So I went over to Italy then and spent a couple weeks just sitting around outside in various locations in Florence trying to come up with an idea for an American movie that I could make about Calcio Storico because I I can't make an Italian movie. I'm I'm not Italian. It would be inauthentic. Um, So I tried to think of an an angle where where I could make an American movie. So I came up with this idea of of an American football player or ex-football player getting involved in this sport. And I played with this idea for some time and couldn't really figure out exactly how to do it and then went on and made another movie uh, and subsequently a few more. But all along this, this, this script, I was working on this script when I could and it was in my mind that someday I would get back to this story and I would, I would go over to Italy and, and make this movie. Um, and then many years later, that moment finally arose um, I guess luckily for me, I, I had already made another movie abroad, the, the uh, science fiction movie I referred to. It was my fourth movie, The Speed of Thought. Mm-hmm. We shot almost all in Uruguay. And it's, uh, it's a very different thing to shoot a movie on location. I'm used to shooting here in New York where I live. And when I did the movie in Uruguay, I was, I was not confident um, because I hadn't done it. I ended up bringing a lot of the crew. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it did teach me many things. And so this time when time, time rolled around to shoot another movie uh, outside the, the States, I was much more calm about it. I decided I'm not going to bring anybody. We'll find all the crew there, uh, which, you know, in Italy is not hard to do. Right. And uh, it was a very local production, um, which was really a pleasure. It was great to be back in Florence. It was great to be, to be working there. Um, the crew was fantastic. And we got to use a lot of great locations and a lot of real Calcio Storico players and, and real locales. Well, and also, you know, because you didn't bring people with you, but for a couple, you know, your cinematographer, Gerardo Gossi, is beautiful, beautiful lensing at capturing not only the ambience and the romance of Florence, but the sport of Calcio Storico, which then your editor, Dean Marcial, just goes to town with some great work in that. 
Great. Yeah, that was, it was a great challenge. Um, and Gerardo is he's he's so fantastic. Uh, he's uh, he's just a, a hilarious guy who's very experienced in the Italian film business, and um, I really enjoyed working with him as much as any uh, cinematographer I've ever had. Um, and the editing, yeah, the editing was really tricky because for the games especially, we actually utilized some real game footage. We created our own games. Mm-hmm. Um, we used the real fans that were there watching the, the, the actual games, and we had our own fans. It was, a, it was a, a combination of a number of different days, a number of different scenarios, and then we also were able to get our players on the field, not to actually play the sport, because that would be way too dangerous. The sport is, is, is not for... Uh, is really only for the people who have been training year-round to do it and who are prepared to accept the consequences of playing because people get hurt constantly. We would never put an actor into that. But we were able to get on the field before the games. All There are four teams, and all the teams go onto the field for the, the elaborate pregame festivities. Mm-hmm. And then the, most of the people remove themselves from the field, and only the two teams that are competing stay there. So for the game that our team, which was the the, the white team, the game that they weren't playing in, we were we were allowed to parade with the white team. Our guys were able to go into the stadium. The camera crew were with them, so we were able to shoot on the actual field, surrounded by the actual fans for this whole pregame ceremony, which was just just so exhilarating. And the energy there is is, is palpable. Um, but that also helped kind of sell. The, the reality that we were trying to create. But you're right, the editing is, boy, it's so important, isn't it? Oh, my God. And, you know, and not just because you're maintaining this flow with the sport, but you, you've got the emotional piggyback because you're, the emotional metaphor of the sport and the turmoil that your lead act, that your protagonist, Eric, that he's going through with his quandary in life, it's a beautiful beautiful balance juxtaposition that you have going on there well thank you it's kind of you to say that and it's it's interesting because it it is really about eric and his and his quandary and what what is his life going to be um it, and it's interesting for me because i did start to think of this movie when i was i would say a young man and mm-hmm. i'm no longer a young man i've i'm i'm in the middle of my career i'm not at the outset of my career and so to look at it now and to see the things that he's really struggling with, I think we probably struggle with these issues all of our lives, the issues of, well, you know, what is my life going to be? You know, am I going to fulfill my, my dreams? Uh, who am I going to be with? I don't think we ever totally lose sight of those issues, but they're really strong, you know, when you're, when you're in your 20s, let's say. You're mm-hmm. really, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who you're going to be with. You don't know where you're going to be. Um, and that's really what the movie is about. So to revisit those issues and have them be so central, it's, it's a bit nostalgic for me. And it's a bit, you know, it's, it, 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 it brings up a nice sentiment uh, for me. Um, but yet I seem to end up talking more about the milieu, <laughs> about the games and about Florence because it's so, the games are so distinctive and Florence is so beautiful. But you're right. It's really the story of Eric and, and what his life is going to be. And, yeah, and, you know, watching the games, I mean, that's the emotional, uh, you know, ball that he's ba- bouncing himself as to, you know, getting jockeyed between do I stay, do I go, do I go back to the States, do I go to law school, you know, what do I do, while lamenting the fact he's not playing football anymore. Right. Well, that's true. The games, I guess that's why the games, I, I think we hit upon a nice balance, because the games do represent him to a degree, because mm-hmm. He does have these dreams of being a football player. It's something he always thought he could do, and now he's being pulled to a more conventional future, um, to going to law school. But that's, as he, as he comes to understand, that's not who he is at this point in life. Someday that will probably be him. But these, these athletic dreams of him are central to his identity. So that's why it makes so much sense for him to get involved in culture historical, because in a way, it is him. It does reflect him. So I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you touched on that. Well, yeah, and your cast. I got to mention your casting. You know, so many people, so many fans of Castle have been bemoaning the fact Castle is now off the air. Well, they now get another shot to take a look at Stanikadic as she's got a small part in Lost in Florence, but it's an important part because she is the cousin that 
let's Eric take refuge with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're right, and it's not. Uh, she is the third most important character in the movie, and I think probably has the third most number of lines after Eric and Stefania, who's the mm-hmm. Italian woman he falls in love with. Um, she is his entry into Italian society. She's his cousin. She lives in Florence with her husband, who's Italian, and she teaches Italian to foreigners at a, at a, at a language institute. Uh, she's Eric's touchstone for the whole movie. Mm-hmm. She's the one who really just wants what's best for him, uh, which was. It was interesting. Stana was really focused on that when we were shooting. Um, really wanted her character to be purely supportive, you know, really mm-hmm. familial. And, um, you know, it was great. It's, it's always wonderful to see how, how actors add to a character, you know. Mm-hmm. So I had written some lines in there that were a little more sort of smart alecky where she was occasionally giving, giving Eric a little more grief. Um, and she kind of you know, we talked about it and she kind of shied away from those lines and wanted wanted to make sure that her character was there for him because he's at a difficult time in life. So it's kind of important, more important than her saying something, you know, funny is for her to really be there for her mm-hmm. cousin. And she still does have some funny, smart alecky lines, but we just, we, we pulled back a little on them because her instincts were right that that character just she needs to be there for her cousin because she sees that he needs her. And he, there, he's 5,000 miles from home. Mm-hmm. He's got nobody else he can, he can really lean on. Um, so it was, it, was, it was great working with her and working with Brett. They were the two Americans who we brought over to Italy. And then everyone else, they're all Italian. You've got Alessandra uh, Mostrinardi as Stefania. Um, Marco Bonini, uh, I, just, I just thought he was just fabulous as a Gianni. But then Alessandro Preziosi as Paolo, who is essentially, you know, Eric's rival. Um, it was it, the chemistry there, the dynamic of how the men were playing against each other, so well-crafted, so well done. Well, thanks. Alessandro is, you know, he's a powerful presence. And I have to say, when we were, when we were casting, I was, I was worried about those two roles, Stefania and Paolo, the two most important Italian mm-hmm. roles, because they also seemed a little bit specific. You know, some roles are easier to cast than other roles. Some mm-hmm. roles you could see lots of actors doing, and some roles you can't. Some roles you really got to find a very specific person. Um, and so I was so pleased that we ended up with, with the two of them. Um, Alessandro Preziosi is now, uh, I, I haven't actually seen it. My wife told me that he's on the, that Medici's, the Netflix Medici's series. Medici. Oh my Netflix. gosh. Yeah, I think he plays Brunelleschi, the the architect. Oh well, now I have show. now I'm going to have to check it out. You know, more and more I'm getting reasons. <laughs> I got I got to now sign up for Netflix. I watch so many films, I don't have time for Netflix. But with all these crossover talents, yeah. So that he he's terrific, Marco. I mean, the wonderful thing about Marco that was tricky because that character has to be an Italian who speaks English really well, mm-hmm. and. I was a little concerned about that. We saw some people who were very charismatic, but just a lot of exposition had to come out of that character's mouth. And so really needed somebody who could speak very clearly and the audience could really understand what they were saying, even if what they were saying was a little bit abstruse. Um, so when we found Marco, I was very happy. Marco lived in L.A. for a number of years and speaks English really well. His, um, his wife was American, so... Um, you know, when you're making a movie, especially with casting, so much of it is serendipity. You know, you kind of hope for for lightning to strike, and sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it does. Well, I'm so glad that lightning struck on Lost in Florence, Evan. I, I just think it is a, it's a beautiful movie on so many levels. Well, thank you. I'm very I'm very gratified to hear you say that, Evan. Thank you so much for calling in today. This is not at all my pleasure. This has been a real Have treat. A are you working on another film now? Well, I am. I'm, uh, you know, as I said before, you tend to do something as a reaction to what you did before. And I'm now working on um, kind of a, I want to call it an art film, kind of a small Streets of New York movie done just exteriors, very small crew, just work with actors who, who I've worked with before. Um, you know, a handful of, of interlocking stories. And I'm, I'm trying to get it right so that we could maybe shoot it this summer um, and maybe do something, take advantage of, of the way things are today and shoot a movie that's, that's very fluid and, and changes and maybe mm-hmm. works out to be something very different than what we initially set out to do because it just seems like that's the way, that's the way art's moving in our world, isn't it? Yes. Things are, things are 
are, are constantly changing. An artist can put out a, an album and then put out a new version of it the next day. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's really, that's really interesting. So I'm, uh, I'm thinking about something like that that's, mm. very, that's very different. Ooh, but we'll I, see. I can't <laughs> wait. I hope you'll come back on the show. You've got an open invitation anytime, Evan. Well, thank you. I would be delighted to. Thanks so much, Evan. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. And now joining us is the wonderful writer-director Christopher Smith. Christopher, are you there? I am there. How are you? I am fine, Christopher. It has been a very, very, very long time since you and I have spoken. We last spoke... Probably what? Was it 2009 or 2006? Uh, for Severance, 2006. Severance, wow, 2006. Whoa. I love that movie. Oh, thank you. I look a lot younger when I made that movie. I, I've had two kids since then, and I've, uh, I've, been, I've, I've had a few too many cakes to eat as well, so <laughs> I've got to get back to that, Chris. Well, uh, you know, it's, as much as I love Severance and all the different ways, uh, the kill shots and and the ingenuity that you brought to that film and the, the black humor of it, uh, you know, I just, I loved it. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to do something else similar to that soon, actually. I've been oh. meaning to get, you know, I love black humor. It's my favorite. And often people see movies that have made since and they see traces of it. But I'm also obsessed with mad, twisty, turny films as well, as you've probably noticed. <laughs> yes, well, yeah. the Severance was my first introduction to you being mad and twisty. Um, Detour is also very mad and twisty. Yeah. And Definitely. I... Yeah, no, yeah. I got to say that watching Detour... You know, what you and your cinematographer, Christopher Ross, did. I love Chris Ross's work anyway. What he did in Black Sea was amazing. But yeah. I ha I'm watching this, and your whole color palette and your lensing style, I'm getting a, a whole 70s vibe um, with the palette, yeah. with the editing, with the, the framing. You know, very Steve McQueen kind of feel. Yeah, very much, very much the, the getaway, and yeah, no, just, um, yeah, I mean, they, these are the films that, you know, I grew up, obviously, loving movies in the 80s, but, but digging back into the 70s was a real, um, was a real thing for me. Uh, I studied film noir at university when I was doing my film degree, but I guess I've always been drawn to the kind of, I don't know, the kind of the look of those widescreen 70s movies, mm -hmm. um, yeah, for sure. Sam Peckinpah. It's, yeah, definitely. I'm glad you noticed that. Oh, you got you definitely have a, a tinge of Peckinpah with your widescreen. Yeah, screen. definitely in the scene with John Lynch when he's throwing the glasses. That's that's very Peckinpah. I think. Very and the much. The fact that he's, he's he's a little bit kind of awkward with the girl. He's not quite. He's not quite. He's not quite right. He's not all there. No. You know, so for our listeners, briefly tell them, you know, because I want everyone to know that they can see Detours Out. It opened on Friday in limited release. Uh, and I think, is it on VOD also now? It's simultaneous VOD, which um, okay. is actually, you know, bizarrely for me, it, it works so well with Black Death. Um, I wish we'd had it for, for Severance as well, because it just allows it to open wider without them spending mm -hmm. the 20 million you need for a super wide release, you know? So it's good. Mm -hmm. we I think it helps cinema in a way. And you and I did Black Death together too. We did. That we was did. in New York. We did. We did a phoner on Black Death. What's that, sorry? We did a phoner on Black Death. Severance we did in person, but Black Death That's we... That's right. We did. We did. I was, in a, I was in a room in New York for nearly all of my interviews, <laughs> so that would have been a phoner, yeah, for sure. <laughs> You'd have been in L.A., I guess. Yes, but but you're right. VOD would have been perfect for you know for Severance, but for Detour and especially with the cast that you have, because they, it's a very eclectic cast, but it's a very popular youthful cast that they've got such fan followings. That yeah, I, I just hope. Yeah, I think um, it's bizarre that each one of them is. You know, we, we were joking when we were making it that we were all in a similar sort of position. Obviously, I'm 20 years older than more more than 20 years older than most of them, but, but there was a sort of similar level. Of, everybody had a little had a little moment, but, but when we made, when Belle Powley was, when we were shooting this film, nobody had seen uh, Diary of a Teenage Girl, so I hadn't seen that movie when I made it. It was, yeah, she was amazing in that. And I was a huge fan of Ties before, 
and um and yeah i love emery from place beyond the pines it was a real groundbreaking performance mm-hmm. i thought well, and even to see them all, you know, it's like Ty to watch, you know, where he came from, you know, with with Tree of Life and then his performance in Mud was outstanding. And then this yeah. past year, Last Days in the Desert, I mean, mm-hmm. wonderful. Same thing with Emery. I he's mean, an amazing young actor and he's an amazing young guy as well. He's a real sweetheart and he's really calm and he's got a really old soul yes. on, his, on, his, on his head. He's, you know, he was 18 when he filmed uh, this film. But you wouldn't think so to be with him. You know, he's, he's a great guy. You know, and, you know, and you've got Emery Cohen, and you mentioned Place Beyond the Pines. But then for a total contrast of what he can do, look at him in Brooklyn, opposite Shersha Ronan. I know. It was funny. I said to him after because I hadn't seen Brooklyn when we got him in there. You know, and I, was, I wanted to make sure that he was tough enough to be Johnny Ray. If I'd have seen him in Brooklyn, I'd have been, I'm not sure. He's a sweetheart in that. <laughs> but what it shows you is the incredible range of the guy, what he can do. Mm-hmm. You know, and Belle is just, she's just amazing, everybody, from Diary of a Teenage Girl to A Royal Night Out, which is just yeah. she, carefree and exuberant in well, that one. exactly what she is. It's funny you say that. That's so perfectly put because I, I hadn't seen anything she'd done and all we'd heard was someone said that she's good in this movie that no one has seen called Die of a Teenage Girl. And as soon as I met her, she was exactly what you just said, carefree and exuberant. And she just made me, I just fell in love with her straight away. And I thought, you've got that perfect, calm, settled soul that the girls will like. Girls will like you and boys will want to want to date you. You know, it's it's a hard thing to, to, to square off, I think, with, yeah. uh, with actresses. But, you know, and you lucked out because these three, they're essentially on a road trip. So not only do you have twists and turns within this story of Detour, you take it on the road, so you throw in the road trip aspect, which always, you know, for a director, for a writer, that gives you so many options of where you can take your story. Yes, right. But, you know, yeah, you, no, you got to make really sure these three. To, because of the split narrative, I was very keen to make them very visually different. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I very much kept one story at home if, if the two stories had both been on separate roads, it would have been a, a problem. So, yeah, but actually, obviously, as, as you work out by the end of the story, there's more to it than that. But absolutely, yeah. So where did the story of Detour, what was the origination of this? Well, I'd, I just finished writing. Um, it was after, after Severance. I, just, I got straight into writing Triangle. And I just finished writing the script. It was 2007, and Disturbia had just been in the cinema. And I was in L.A. and, you know, I'd like that movie a lot. And they were talking, Hollywood was talking about, let's get some more thrillers. And, and for some reason, I'm just in a room trying to come up with, with a, an exec, a, a, a spin on the Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train. You know, mm-hmm. boy meets boy and decides to kill each other's wife or girlfriend. Of course. And then I think because my brain was so wired into triangle and this kind of loops and that I just said, well, what happens if we do a split narrative and you think it's, like sliding doors based on the decision to either kill or not to kill. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where it came from. And, yeah, it just all happened very quickly. Yeah, And, this... and then I just sat on the idea for five years for some reason before I got right into writing it. But, you know, it's, it's an interesting story because we've got Ty's character of Harper. You know, he's a law student, but, you know, he's, he just, you know, a little bit of legal knowledge is a very dangerous thing, and you really play on that so well. Um, oh, thank you, because that's so true. Just a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. Yeah, you know, especially. And, and, a little, and, and, and a little bit of confidence and privilege and, and yeah, mixed with naivety, a little bit of alcohol, and, yep. and a lot of uh, youthful um, idealism. <laughs> yeah, and that all comes to fruition when he gets this idea that his stepfather has done something you know, he's somehow involved in the accident that has put Harper's mother into a coma. That's right. And, of course, what does everybody think about when they're drunk and they're pissed off and they got a little bit of legal knowledge? I can execute a hit. I can, I can find somebody to take care of this man because he did my mom wrong. Yeah, and the guy makes it seem easy. And um, this, this idea, I, I met one of the... Um, one of the great, this is a, I've never told this story. I met one of the great train robbers very uh, briefly. I was thinking about developing a story. The great train robbery happened in the 60s in England. Mm-hmm. And, I, and we were talking about the, the Duwani case of how this, could someone put a hit on somebody? 
And this guy explained to me that putting a hit on someone's easy, but the problem is, is the person you've hired may come back and haunt you. And if he doesn't haunt you, then you'll haunt yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought, ooh. And that kind of really landed on me, this idea that actually, who's he escaping from, the police or himself? And, you know, that's the big thing people forget when they enter into a, a very a foolish, yeah, foolish thing like murder. And and we see that, you know, that whole torment, it plays out so beautifully. Thanks, in oh. you know, in large part to Ty's, you know, his abilities and his performance, but also in the way you have crafted this story, going back and forth and setting us up with the different perspectives. You know, Emery's character of Johnny Ray, you know, Bell's character of Cherry. We're getting all the different points of view and perspectives as to how things can and might play out. And it's very yeah. tricky. So, you know. It's, yeah, no, thank you very much. It's, for me, it's, um, it's tricky in the sense that actually, even though, as you later uncover, that the story has other twists down the line, mm-hmm. what, what's, what's important is, for me, those two stories will run concurrently in him because every step he takes as he walks forward down the road in the future will always have that that decision following with him. And I think that's the, that's the key. There's never a, no one really escapes. And I guess that comes back to your point about that seventies thing. There were no clean endings in the seventies. And I think what drew me to film the war as well is that you can have really murky, you know, make you feel bad. No country mm-hmm. for old men endings in, in that world. And it's, it's refreshing for filmmakers to be able to do that. I think, and you bring up a good point, and I think that's one of the appeals that, and why film noir has has endured over the decades, and why you know there has there has been over the past ten fifteen years a resurgence in neo noir because yeah. of that murkiness, but now with the silken glisten polish, uh, you know, of an ebony knight or something that adds just yeah. another layer to it, and here. You essentially do that, but you do it with, you know, these, you and Christopher work out these bold, bright yellows and even some sickly tones, but, you know, casting shadows and a pallor yeah, over we, things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, 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 we make the desert, we create the shadow from the sort of the bright sun and the desert and the yellow and blue. Um, yeah, that was all, it was, I'm really glad you, it, it, you, you know, that's all come across because it was, you don't want to have, you know, films are one of two things often, modern cinema. We always say it's either Caravaggio, where it's all natural light, light and shade, or it's Hopper. Uh, yeah. And by Hopper, you know, structurally, beautifully composed. Obviously, ours is definitely Hopper, but we try to uh, create menace within the Hopper world instead of it just being the chiaroscuro lighting that you, you'd expect in a, in a noir. Mm-hmm. How difficult was it for you and Christopher, you know, to achieve the, the lighting palette, that visual tonal bandwidth that you have? Because that's not an e especially when you've got the desert, you've got the striking sun, then you have contrasting interiors, but you've got yeah, a, a cohesiveness. We, we tried, we, the the interior where fifty percent or you know fifty percent but maybe thirty percent of the opening takes place cross cut with the desert. We wanted there to be a difference, but also to have this is almost like a nineteen fifties when you see the pool. It's almost this David Lynch, you know, it's yeah. very kind of um, and Lynch does it as well. That kind of scary color. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we just we you know we we have we have Harper pull those curtains very quickly in in the house but we keep the curtain in that thin yellow so you've you've permanently got the same palette whether it be the desert sun with the bright yellow or the sort of interior house but then mixed in the back of the shot you've got the blue of the pool and then on the car on the road you've got the blue of the car so there are these kind of coders that we kept on both stories to keep the stories linked um i think that plays a part in it for sure yeah i mean i think that it's it just it's so cohesive so visually oh, cohesive, so I, you know, I really love that. And, you know, also playing into that cohesiveness and finding this great balance with the split story going, your editor, Christina Hetherington, oh, my yeah. God. I know she's dazzling people with her work on The Crown right now. That's right, yeah. She's, she's amazing because she kept it. It's got a really – some people don't get this, but it's got a very lyrical – 
um, feeling to it where, where you're, you're using long takes and you're using, you know, you're, you're allowing to look into the characters instead of just having cut, 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 cut. So mm-hmm. she, was, she showed a lot of restraint, I think. And that was all her. It wasn't me dictating anything. It was just, I really enjoyed working with her. Yeah, for sure. Now, did you actually do long takes or is it, you know, Christina's magic of editing that makes it appear as being longer well, we takes? Did, we shot, you know, there, is, there are some sequences which are like the scene where we go through the mirror and we follow him out to the pool that are designed in a very much a kind of 1940s film noir Mm-hmm. moving cam kind of style but then there's other things in the car where we'll just let the we'll let the camera roll and i wasn't doing that with a view to let's just stay on the master i, I really wanted to sort of let the actors act i wanted there to be an interaction between the three of them in real time um not just through the edit so i think it was a mixture but if you look at the big long restaurant scene at the beginning mm-hmm. and that's, that's a really hard scene to edit because you really are trying to get information across and trying to keep people interested. And I think that's where this has really cut them, you know, really, really she pulled off some really good tricks, I think, there. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, it's hard for me to tell. You know, I'm <laughs> glad you say that. I'll certainly pass that on to her. Well, you know, and something else that's very hard to do is you've got a lot of stuff happening in cars and in small cars. How, yeah. how logistically challenging is that for you as a director and for, you know, yeah. your cinematographer, um, Christopher. I've always wanted to make a road movie. I've, I've loved that, even the subdivision of the road movie, like the film Detour, the original. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love movies where people are driving. I love people eating and driving and, you know, that whole kind of American landscape. But it's not fun to shoot. I mean, shooting in a car. I like to be with the actors like we're in a sound stage or in a room. I want to, you know, you're on the back of a truck. You know the sound's going to probably be all be redone anyway because it's so noisy. So it's kind of painful. And not being in the room with, with them, you know, the four of us became like a little band, uh, the three of them and me. And then one day when we were shooting the road stuff, it was the only day I ever gave them a note where I said, guys, you seem to have lost all your energy. You're just, you're just rubbish. Can you go back to being brilliant, please? And they all went, yeah, we are. We're being rubbish. We're just really hot. So we all had a nice drink of, you know, because it was in the desert and they got back to their usual brilliance. But yeah, it was wearing. It was four or five days of being on a low loader. Wow. The desert. But now let me ask yeah. you, you're out in the desert shooting. It is hot. They're giving you rubbish because they're hot and they're worn out. Did you at least get to have the air conditioner in the car running? There was no air conditioner in that old car. The car barely worked. Oh, and we God. had to turn the engine off because... Uh, because we didn't want the engine ticking over while it's pretending to be driving on the back of a low loader. Oh, my God. Um, no, so, like, you know, the amazing scene where the first time I did it, I got in the boot of the car, in the trunk of the car. Mm-hmm. So one of the scenes, just to not have a low loader, I'm hiding in the, in the, in the trunk, and um, Emery Cohen's driving, and as soon as they pull away, I realize this is, this is crazy. This is the director and all the cast in a car with an actor driving a car that doesn't work properly across a desert. We're going to die. So we got stuck on a low loader. But, um, you know, I think they're amazing in the, in the scene because I think they, they've got such energy in that car. And, in, you know, I can say to give one note out of five days, which made everyone laugh, is a, it's a good going, I think. And especially a note like that. I mean, that, that has to, like, lighten the mood for everybody. Yeah, but they know what I'm like. They know that I've been just telling them they're absolutely brilliant for the last six weeks. I mean, if I come in and say to them, you know, that was rubbish, they'll go, really? Because all I've been doing is rubbing their backs and saying they're all young Marlon Brando and young Marlon Dietrich. And, yeah. How long was the shoot on this one, Chris? Uh, it was six weeks. Um, yeah, six weeks. Um, you know, some of it was spread. It was spread the, the shoot was spread across L.A. and Vegas. And then mm-hmm. we also shot loads of it in South Africa as well for, uh, for the cost reasons. But... Um, yeah, it was great. We had to fly everybody out, so it was kind of fun. Well, and I have to say, some of the most, without giving away any spoilers, you know, there are climactic scenes in the film that are on the ocean that are just some of the most exquisite shots that, you know, oh, so, that have th- graced th- film. Thank you for that, because we we raced to the ocean with the sun sailing. We'd, you know, I cast Kai Sheridan, 
who, who you know, Terence Malick discovered this kid. Yeah. We run out. It's cloudy. I'm, I'm having a tantrum saying there's no way I'm going to shoot unless the sun's going down. And then suddenly, the magic of cinema, all the clouds move. And we're on this beach and everything just turns pinky orange for real. You know, <laughs> it was so uh, we just, yeah, it was just the ending is, I'm so, I love that ending. It's just beautiful. It is it, the image. I mean, the, you know, that's one of your money shots of the film. Oh, for sure. It is absolutely stunning. You take that and then you take a couple of the desert shots. And I mean, you're just the contrast. There's a great contrast, but continuity. With everything you have in this film. Oh, that's very kind of you. I mean, I really, I am so, so impressed. And, you know, to still see you doing the twisty-turny stuff, you know. <laughs> and, of course... There's a, couple, there's a couple of laughs in there as well. There's a few nice, funny moments with his friend Paul. And there's a few, you know, there's the cop. There's the cop on acid. There's, a, there's some... Uh, there are there's some... There are some... Ex- stuff in there. Yeah, there's some extremely funny stuff in Detour. I, you know... Trust me, it was not lost on me when I saw it. Okay. And it it just screamed Christopher Smith humor. <laughs> oh, yeah, very much so. Because just you do. Anything that's remotely debauched and just, uh, yeah, I've got a very dark sense of humor. So what do you have? My uh, wife keeps, oh, sorry. No, what, your wife keeps telling you what? <laughs> she keeps telling me, you've got to make, you just got to, stop making all these serious films, please. You're just a stupid person. Go and make some funny films. It's like... You know, just why, you know, why do you always want to be, you know, Kislowski or Kiristami or <laughs> you're not. Well, you, you know, your, your wife has to understand, you know, it is very funny when you have a young man wrapping up a body and dragging across the floor and just wiping the floor to get blood up, but not realizing he's leaving half of it there. Yeah, of course. Exactly. That's the, that's it. You know, and, you, and you know, pulling the, you know, pulling the knife out and it's, can't get the legs to wrap around properly. It's totally black humor. <laughs> can't get the body to sit still. And yeah, I mean, it was restrained by my standards. But it, uh, it, true, true. For your standard, it was restrained, but it was still, I mean, I, I chuckled watching it. I couldn't help myself. Oh, good. Yeah. Christopher, this has been an absolute joy. You have to make more films so that we don't just talk to each other, you know, every six years or something. Believe you me, I would, I would love to be talking to you once a year. That would be absolutely perfect for me. This time next year, I mean, I'll shoot a film in the summer, edit it in, the, in October, and then I'll be on the phone to you. But, yeah, it's been a pleasure for me, too, and thank you for all your support through the years as well. Oh, so, Christopher, a pleasure. Really and I, I will look forward to that next film. No, it's going to be fun. I'm going to do some. There's, going to, there's a funny one and a dark one coming. So okay. Sit tight. Well, you know I'll see them both, so. <laughs> You'll see them, hopefully, yeah, hopefully. Hopefully they'll be, uh, they'll be, they'll be released in the States, so that'd be great. Wonderful. Oh, Christopher, thank you so much. And thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. One of, one of my longtime favorite writer-directors, Christopher Smith. Detour on VOD now. See it. For more of Christopher's work, you know, I can't recommend highly enough. Find Severance, see it. Find Black Death, see it. Um, This is a filmmaker that more people need to know about. Um, He's been around a while, but, you know, same as with Evan Oppenheimer. We're doing indie film, low budget, no budget. And it's very hard to get the word out there. And luckily, you know, now this will be the first film that Christopher has that with uh, VOD exposure. Um, his other films, it was, you know, a one-week theatrical release, and it kind of fell by the wayside and eventually went on to DVD. So we've had two incredible indie filmmakers today. Evan Oppenheimer, Lost in Florence, is out this Friday. Christopher Smith, Detour, is on VOD right now. Oscar nominations tomorrow, Friday at 10 p.m. on KCET, and then streaming on KCET.org and KCET Link. The Cohen Film Classic Series starts for all you classic film fans. And we got a name for the Star Wars film. It's been a great, a great Monday. So, from behind the lens, I'm Debbie Elias. We'll be back next week. And it could be a surprise because it depends on what happens with Oscar nominations tomorrow morning. Until then, this is Behind the Lens.
Thank you.